to read with me now Psalm 2, which we learn from Acts chapter 4, is written by David. He says, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will, de- I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Congregation, I did this to an extent when we looked at Psalm 1 a few months ago, but it's helpful as we approach the book of the Psalms uh, to, to understand what the Psalms are doing. Uh, they're not just a, a collection of, of um, randomly assorted greatest hits of King David, but they're purposefully arranged and tell a story. You can see that purposeful arrangement uh, in, in so many different aspects of the book, the, the way that it's not just given to us in um, 150 psalms in, in a single book, but is arranged in five books, um, each of them ending with, with a, an almost identical doxology. There are many uh, different mini-collections scattered throughout. You think of the psalms of the sons of Korah, or the psalms of Asaph, the psalms of Ascents, or Hallel psalms. These groupings together that that are not just random, but suggest to us that there is intentional placement of these different psalms. And you have the earlier psalms, uh, the the earlier books rather, many historical superscriptions of events in David's life. See one of those in Psalm 3 tomorrow. These historical superscriptions that largely cease after the end of book 2, where it tells us the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. All of this contributes to an understanding of the book that is not haphazard in its composition, but intentional. There is purposeful arrangement to this altar, even a story that's being told throughout it, the story of God's kingdom. Notice how the one individual who is at the center and forefront of so many of these psalms is David. He's mentioned in the superscription of almost every psalm in book one, most of them in book two. The king looms large in this book. 
And you can see that especially as you look at the, the different hinges or, or seams throughout these five books. Now, book two ends with a royal psalm about the Davidic covenant, Psalm 72. Likewise, book 3 ends with with Psalm 89, which is also about the Davidic covenant. In fact, it asks, after this point in Israel's history where David is now gone and and they're in exile, Lord, have you forgotten your covenant promise? Have the promises that you made to David forever ceased? That's what Psalm 89 is about. That's that's largely the concern of books 3 and and books 4, as the Davidic dynasty has become but a stump. As you you zoom out and look at at the whole of the Psalter, you see in books 1 and 2 the rise of the Davidic dynasty. In books 3 and 4, you see its fall. And we come to book 5, and seemingly out of nowhere come this this return of of these royal and Davidic psalms like Psalm 110 or Psalm 118 or or Psalm 132 and 145 that, that make clear to us God has not forgotten his promises to David but a king with universal dominion whose kingdom is forever is coming. That's why the Psalter ends in 146 to 150 with this universal praise where everything that has breath is praising the Lord. And so the Psalms together, they they tell the story of the messianic hope of a David to come. One theologian says the the canonical structuring or or shaping of the Psalms clearly develops the prophetic theme of a renewed earth under a Davidic leader. The shape of the Psalter clearly develops the prophetic theme of a renewed earth under a new Davidic king. That prophetic theme is first introduced to us right here in Psalm 2, the very entryway into the Psalter. Psalm 2 introduces us to this theme of of the Davidic covenant and God's coming king. As you could say, in in some sense, the the rest of the Psalter is is an extended reflection on Psalm 2. Psalm 2 introduces to us this theme of the Davidic covenant and the rest of the Psalter in many ways is but an extended reflection on Psalm 2. This psalm gives us a, a royal orientation to the rest of the book. And so understanding Psalm 2 is crucial if we would understand the rest of this royal hymn book of God's people. If we would understand what we're doing as we're reading and praying and singing the Psalms. And so as we come to Psalm 2 and, and try to get our bearings, I, I would suggest to you that the point of this psalm is that God has made promises to David concerning a king who had come from his line And though the nations seek to prevent those promises from coming to fruition, God calls them to recognize that his promises will not fail and they must submit to his anointed king. Those who do will not perish in the way of the wicked, that same way of Psalm 1, but will be blessed, Psalm 2.12, because they have taken refuge in the blessed man, the same blessed man of Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is calling us to take refuge in him, God's king, because God will keep his promises to David. And so this psalm is an invitation at the very beginning of the Psalter to long for and to worship God's king who will be prophetically depicted throughout the rest of this book. 
David is here looking forward to the king who would come from his line and is inviting us with him to sing for the king. He is inviting us with him to kiss him and find refuge in him. So look with me at the four parts that we see to this psalm. We see first the rage of the nations, verses 1 to 3. We see the response of the Lord in verses 4 to 6, the reign of his son in 7 to 9, and then we see finally the rest that he offers. The rage of the nations, the response of the Lord, the reign of his son, and the rest that he offers. It's that rage in verses 1 to 3 where the the people, it tells us, are plotting a vain thing. And this is not just some small group of people that are are plotting a vain thing, but it's it's all of the rulers, even of the nations, the the kings of the earth. They're coming together and, and setting themselves, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. Let us throw off the rule of God's king and resist his authority. Let us overthrow God's kingdom since submitting to his rule is burdensome. This is the voice of those throughout history who have sought to bring about the demise of God's kingdom. You can think through through the Old Testament of those like Pharaoh who tried to kill all the baby Hebrew boys in Egypt. Or those like Balak in Numbers 22 through 25 who who sought to curse God's people. Those like Athaliah who we looked at a few weeks ago who tried to decimate the royal line. People like Herod who who tried to kill the Christ. The scribes and Pharisees who had him put to death. The enemies of the gospel all throughout the book of Acts and throughout church history even to today who hate God's kingdom and hate his son. It is their voice that we hear in verses 1 to 3. They take counsel together. They they make a covenant together, Psalm 83 says, and say, let us oppose God's kingdom. Let us throw off the rule of his Messiah so that we can be free to live however we want, so that we can be kings unto ourselves and live in a way that seems right to us without any reference to God's law or God's word or God's king. That's what they're saying. It's interesting, while the blessed man of Psalm 1 delights in the law of God, the kings of the nations here despise it. And while the blessed man in Psalm 1 meditates on that law day and night, the people of Psalm 2 meditate, that's actually the same word there that's translated plot, Just as he was meditating on the law of God, here they are plotting or meditating on vanity, on how to rid themselves of God's law. It's these people here in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, they are the the wicked or ungodly who we met in Psalm 1. Instead of meditating on God's good word, they seek to throw it off. Instead of meditating on on the good promises that are contained in that word of a king who would rule in righteousness, they they seek to destroy that king. That's what the enemies of the gospel before Christ's coming tried to do. That's what the enemies of Christ who crucified him tried to do. 
And it's what the enemies of Christ, even after his ascension, seek to do. As we, we read in the book of Acts, that those who persecute the church ultimately are persecuting Christ. And Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so we see from this psalm that though God has given glorious promises of a king who would come, that those promises will be met with hostility. That this king whom he has promised would not be met with open arms, but rather when he came, Matthew chapter 2, all Jerusalem was troubled. And the world around us continues to be troubled by this king, seeing his good and life-giving commands as oppressive. Seeing his commands that protect life as interfering with our right to choose death. Seeing his commands about marriage as old-fashioned and restrictive. And so the world around us says we will not have this man to rule over us. But they take counsel together and say, let us do everything we can to burst their bonds apart, to break them in pieces. The same thing that they did 2,000 years ago and this hatred of God and hatred of his kingdom reached the peak of its insanity and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 say that these verses find their ultimate fulfillment when Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together to kill Jesus. But even as they raged... God says that they were actually doing the very thing that his hand had predetermined. Which is why, in the next part of our psalm, in verses 4 through 6, it says that he who sits in heaven laughs. That's the response of the Lord to the rage of the nations. He holds them in derision. Because in the very same act in which they take counsel together against his Christ, God is in fact setting his king on Zion. That very same act in which they sought to destroy him, the the crucifixion of Christ, it is is part one of the enthronement of God's king. They're playing right into the hand of the sovereign Lord. Their opposition is, to the Christ cannot succeed in casting his cords away because he is God Almighty who even exerts a a directing influence so that good is made to result from their intended evil. And so even their wicked acts of blasphemy and, and the murder of God's son he uses to bring about the fulfillment of his plan. Such is the sovereignty of our great God, and and, and such a sovereign, almighty God they cannot defeat. So it says he will terrify them in his wrath by causing this very same one who they oppose to be installed as king of the nations who will repay them. And Psalm 2 verse 5 says that this will be a terrifying thing. In fact, it's interesting, one commentator points out that the same phrase that's used here to to, uh, describe um, God terrifying or distressing them in his fury, that same phrase is used also to describe the dismay of Joseph's brothers in Genesis 45. 
when he revealed himself to them many years after they had sold him into slavery. When they sold him into slavery, they did not fear him because they had not seen him in his terrifying majesty as Lord of Egypt. But now they did. Genesis 45 verse 3 says they trembled. The one who they plotted against in jealous hatred, God used their very sins against him to raise him up as Lord, and now they fear. And so it is with those who conspire against God and his anointed. He has set his king on Zion, which is really the theme then of verses 7 to 9, where it speaks of the reign of his son. And David here takes the language of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says of his descendant, I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son. Where 2 Samuel 7 is that covenant that God makes with with David, one of the, the high peaks, the high points of all of Old Testament history, where David says to the Lord, I want to build you a house, and God says, no, I will build you a house and a kingdom, and from it will come an everlasting king. God says in in, uh, verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And it is that same son, the the one who will fulfill that promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, who who David prophetically presents as the speaker in verse 7. The speaker in verse 7 is that king from David's line. And we know that it's not ultimately David who is the speaker here because in in verse 6 when he says that God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill, the place of the temple, that temple is not yet there in David's day. He knew that it would be, 2 Samuel 24. But as of David's own day, there was no holy hill in Zion for God to set him on. David is not here speaking of of his ascent to the throne, but rather of the one of verse 7, to whom God will say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is the eternal king of 2 Samuel 7.14, to whom God would be a father, and he would be a son. David is presenting that future king from his line as the speaker of verse 7 knowing that those words of 2 Samuel 7 would be fulfilled in his descendants. And so the voice of the first person speaker in verse 7 is to be understood as the voice of David's son, the promised descendant who would come from his line. David is speaking prophetically of the fulfillment of what God has promised, where to his son, whom the nations oppose, God would give the ends of the earth as his possession. God would give him universal dominion. That's what God has promised way back in 2 Samuel 7, which which Psalm 2, you could say, is is the soundtrack of. David is taking the promises of God from 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant, and he he is putting them to music and prophetically proclaiming the fulfillment of them, where though the nations oppose God's king, God will install him on his holy hill. The New Testament tells us that this verse is fulfilled, Acts chapter 13, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Part two of of the king's enthronement, where it says in Romans 1 verse 4 that, that God declares him to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 
That is when God said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, And so God gives him authority over all nations. It's why Jesus can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that authority is then publicly demonstrated by his ascension to the right hand of God, part three of his enthronement, where he will rule from heaven, causing the nations to come to him and dashing to pieces like a potter's vessel all who continue to oppose him. That's what it says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. The king, the one who is enthroned in his resurrection and ascension, will be given a scepter. That word for rod is is the same word for scepter in uh, Genesis 49 or Numbers 24, which which the, the king from the tribe of Judah, the star of Balaam's oracle, would use to crush the forehead of Moab. Remember that beautiful prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, where it says that a a star will rise from Jacob, a, a king, and he will be given a scepter by which he will crush the forehead of Moab. Those who, in the context of that passage, were seeking to destroy God's kingdom. The commentator puts it this way, the eschatological king who will inherit the nation's and possess the ends of the earth, will crush the head of the serpent seed who plot a vain thing against God and the seed of the woman. He will be given that scepter of Numbers chapter 24 by which the heads of the seed of the serpent would be crushed. That scepter, this king of Psalm 2, will be given. It's interesting, the same word that's used of him dashing them will actually come up again later in the Psalms in Psalm 137. It says, blessed is the one who dashes the children of Babylon against the rock. It is that the children or seed of spiritual Babylon, a symbol in the Bible for all that is opposed to God's kingdom. All throughout the Psalter, God's people are looking for this one who will come and crush the head of the serpent, crush the serpent seed. This psalm is is speaking of a king who will rule as God's son and will finally and fully defeat all evil. And as it's presenting him to us, it's calling us to put our trust in him. That's what we see in verses 10 through 12. We've, We've seen the rage of the nations, we've, we've seen the response of the Lord and the reign of his son. Now at the close of the psalm, we see the rest that he offers. Where even as he threatens to dash to pieces those who continue to resist his rule and hate his people, even as he issues that threat, at the very same time, he, he invites them to obtain true wisdom, to, to be wise, verse 10, by rejoicing in this king, serving him with fear, with trembling, and kissing him. You see the patience of the Lord here at the end of Psalm 2. Do you see his long suffering and that even while they oppose him and are, are vainly raging against him, here he is inviting them to find refuge in him. 
Again, a little bit like Joseph who desired to be reconciled to his brothers. This, beloved, is our king foreshadowed in the life of Joseph and in the Psalms of David. This is our king. Do you hear his, his gracious summons in verse 12? To come and find refuge in him, to put your trust in him, to kiss the son. This is a summons that John Calvin rightly says applies to all men from the highest to the lowest. He says, if David spared not even the kings themselves in this summons, much more then does his exhortation apply to the common class of men in order that all from highest to lowest may humble themselves before God. So the Holy Spirit here through David is calling you, is is calling all of us to submit to the king whom God has enthroned. You could say here in these final verses, the gospel is going out and we must not refuse it. But our response must be to kiss the son, to serve him with fear and, and rejoice in him and be wise. You notice how this this invitation to wisdom in these closing verses where it says, now therefore be wise, O king. So this invitation to wisdom is is ultimately inviting us to do what the blessed man of Psalm 1 does and delight in God's Torah, to meditate on it and become wise. Do you recall from Psalm 1 that the invitation at the very outset of the Psalms to delight in and meditate on God's Torah is ultimately an invitation to delight in in this book, the book of the Psalms, that is shaped like the Torah in five books. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are calling us to be wise and to rejoice in the king who is the subject of this book. It's calling us to meditate on him and then rejoice in him. If we do, if we serve him with joy or rather serve him with fear and and rejoice with trembling. That's what what it says in verse 11. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Notice that that dual emphasis on both joy but also reverence. That if we serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling, if we kiss the son, the king of verse 7, when Psalm 2.12 says, we too will be blessed. The way to the blessing of Psalm 1 is through the king of Psalm 2. This dual introduction is calling us to rejoice in this king, to serve him with fear and trembling, to kiss him and pay homage to him. And it's the rest of the Psalms then that are going to teach us how to do that that are going to teach us how to kiss the Son and serve Him with trembling and, and, and rejoice in Him. It's the rest of the Psalms that are going to teach us how to sing for the King, how to love Him and orient our whole selves to Him. This is, is what the rest of the Psalms are, there, are going to teach us how to do. Here at the very beginning of the Psalter, the Psalms are setting before us the promised reign of the Son of David and His sure victory. They're calling us to share in that victory by putting our trust in him. Warning us of what happens if we don't, that we'll be dashed to pieces as his wrath is kindled and we perish in the way. 
And then the rest of the Psalter is going to teach us just how to put our trust in him. It's going to model for us a longing for this king and a delight in him. Psalm 2, along with Psalm 1, sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter as an invitation to rejoice in the king. It's showing us how the sure fulfillment of the Davidic covenant should cause us to put our trust in God's king, should cause those who oppose this king and oppose his kingdom to reverse their course and trust him, repent of their sins and kiss the son, and should cause all the rest of us to rejoice in him. It's no accident that that one of the most explicitly messianic psalms is right here at the very beginning. It's meant to show us that we are to read, sing, and pray this book with an eye toward the king. That this collection of songs and prayers is a messianic collection. And just as Psalm 2, right here at the beginning, is calling us to bow the knee to the king, so the whole book will join in that summons to long for and worship and sing for the king, the one against whom the nations rage. And so we should not be surprised if they rage against us too. The one whose law and rule is good, and so we ourselves should not seek to cast it off, And the one who one day will come again to dash in pieces all those who continue to rage against him. All of these themes of of the suffering nature of the church and, and the goodness of this king's rule and the just judgment that he will one day bring, all of these themes are going to be unfolded throughout the rest of this book. Even this call to the nations and to all men to rejoice in him and be blessed, to treasure the Messiah. This is what Psalm 2 is preparing the way for in the rest of the book. This is, this is what we hope to consider uh, throughout much of, of 2023. As we think then about the, the relevance of, of all of these themes from Psalm 2 as we, we enter into a new year and as we reflect on the year that his it is passing. These very themes from Psalm 2 are the, the things that we need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded as each year passes into another to treasure the king above all else, to love him and rejoice in him, to kiss the son as this psalm calls us to. There are so many other things in the world that are, that are competing for our affections and those things will continue to bombard us in the year to come. Psalm 2 is calling us to treasure the King and Messiah above all else. It calls us not only to treasure him ourselves, but to pray for the coming of his kingdom. As this psalm teaches us what the coming of his kingdom looks like, it teaches us how to pray for the coming of that kingdom. It means praying for the full establishment of the messianic kingdom that is here described. It means giving thanks for the Gentiles who have been brought in, the nations who have been given to the Son as his inheritance. It means praying for those kings and nations who continue in their rebellion against God, even even this nation. It includes supplication for our brothers and sisters who are under governments that are especially hostile to the Christian faith. As, As we see in this psalm, the suffering nature of the church of Christ. 
And our prayers for the coming of God's kingdom include even intercession for the, the Jewish people who totally missed their king who came. Psalm 2 aids us in praying for the coming of God's kingdom. It also helps us to recognize that as we pray for that, this kingdom comes through suffering. This psalm teaches us to recognize the suffering nature of Christ's kingdom. And you see that in the way that Acts chapter 4 takes this messianic psalm and then applies it to the people of the Messiah, saying that just as Herod and Pontius Pilate and, and all of these people set themselves against King Jesus, so they will set themselves against his people. This psalm sets before us the suffering nature of Christ's kingdom. As it says in, in Acts chapter 14, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom. And yet it doesn't just remind us of the suffering nature of the kingdom, but it also consoles us as the world rages on seeking to destroy Christ's kingdom by reminding us that this is simply the the, the fulfillment of what God has here declared. All of the raging, all of of the, the vain plotting, as the nations rage, and set themselves against the church, this psalm reminds us that God is not surprised by that. This psalm reminds us that in the midst of their raging, Jesus wins. Whatever new attempts there may be in 2023 to supplant the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to cast off the chains of his law, Psalm 2 assures us that their plotting is in vain, for God has set his king on Zion. This psalm teaches us that though the world may hate, we may lift our eyes to the throne which consoles. As one writer has said, this passage is a great source of comfort because it offers a Christological interpretation of history. It tells us that ultimately all of history revolves around the Messiah and his conquest over the wicked, which means victory for those who look to him by faith. This psalm calls us to remember that Jesus wins. Even as it reminds us of that, it's then calling us to come to him for refuge, to to believe on this Messiah with rejoicing and trembling And as we do that, to also determine in 2023 to call the nations to come and do likewise, to give and pray and labor to that end for the sake of Jesus Christ, the one who has been set on God's holy hill. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm and for the whole collection of the psalms which remind us that you keep every one of your promises, including those promises made to David of a king who would come from his line. Lord, we thank you that that king has come even as we just celebrated last week at Christmas. And even though his people to whom he came did not receive him but would eventually kill him, they were doing what your hand and your sovereign purpose had predetermined. Like Joseph, even the evil that they did to him, you used for good. You intended it for good. 
and so that your son would be exalted and given the nations. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we are among those who have been given to your son as his inheritance. We thank you that even though the wicked continue to plot, not just against Christ, but also his people, that we have this sure comfort that Jesus wins. A sure comfort that runs all throughout the Psalms and should cause us to treasure him above all else. We pray, Lord, that we would, that 2023 would be a year in which we seek and savor Jesus so that you would um, even uh, teach us to do so by the Psalms that we consider, that you would teach us like him to delight in your word and not view it as restrictive and oppressive, but would help us to be a people who love it, help us to be a people who love and delight in your law unlike the world around us. You'd help us also in the way that we conduct ourselves not to live like the wicked in this psalm, speaking vainly and plotting against those for whom Christ has died, living in opposition to your law and and failing to either serve you with fear or um, to rejoice with trembling. Lord, make us respond rightly to this psalm and help us to pray that all men would do so also that the nations who have been given to Christ as his rightful inheritance would come to him, that the fullness of the Gentiles would be brought in and the Jews called and the nations who rebel against Christ repent and the the fullness of what is here described in Psalm 2 would come. Lord, we pray that kingdom come. We ask that you would teach us to pray that in this next year for Jesus' sake. Amen.